Well, good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you all. This morning, we are going to be looking at Mark chapter 14. We're still there. This is the 63rd Mark sermon. Yeah, there you go. I'm catching up with my dad's age. The number of sermons here. (laughs) Don't go there. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. So we'll be looking at verses 22 through 26. But before we do that, let's pray. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much that you have called us out of the world. Um, We often wonder uh, why us. We know many, uh, Lord God, who need you. And we are so thankful that you have drawn us to your son. As we hear him speak today, as we hear him explain something that is deep and profound, we pray, Lord God, that we would um, listen that we will understand even better than we did yesterday these difficult things, but above all, that we would just listen to him and, and behold him and look at him and love him more. We thank you and we praise you and amen. So today's topic is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, communion or Eucharist, it has a lot of different names. Essentially, it's this table that is set here before me. Now, have you ever wondered why ministers refer to Jesus being present while pointing down at the table that's set before me? What do we mean that the second person of the Trinity is here in our midst, laid out on a table in Linwood in 2020? What does that mean? What does that mean when I, because I do it quite frequently, I point to Jesus and I say, here, he's here. What does that mean? Has Jesus departed from God's right hand in heaven, incarnating himself yet again, but this time as bread and wine? Does he reincarnate himself every week? Added to this mystery are the words of institution. Jesus said, this, holding the bread, is my body, broken for you. And he held the cup and he said, this is my blood of the covenant. And (laughs) the Reformation... um, The word is was one of the biggest controversial things that they dealt with. What does it mean that he says is? This is. Luther famously, when uh, the Lutherans and the Reformed types separated, they actually separated, and and Luther is in a pub, and they're having this debate, and he he takes his shoe off, and he starts pounding it on the table, saying is, is, is. (laughs) And so this has been a controversy for a while. It was a controversy before Luther came along, I tell that story because that's Luther for you in a pub debating uh, the the true presence of Jesus Christ over beers and uh, resorting to pounding the table with his shoe. Well, they left from that pub and they, I would say, still had even less of an idea (laughs) what it means that this is my body, this is my blood. Isn't the Lord's Supper just a reminder, a metaphor? Some of you might be sitting there wondering, what is he even talking about? It's not anything. It's bread. It's wine. That's all. It's like a, like a wedding ring. It's something that, it's a physical object and a physical object only that we just look at and behold and contemplate as we consider our own sinfulness, as we consider what Jesus did. Isn't the important thing about the Lord's Supper the quiet reflection and self-examination before eating and drinking? What we need to comprehend, however, is that the Lord's Supper is a meal, a very, very odd meal. 
If you go away with anything today, I want you to understand how odd this meal actually is. Because at the head of this table is God himself. And what is served on the table is, in fact, God himself. This is a meal, a meal hosted by God in which he serves himself to you every single week in every single church that does it all over the world for 2,000 years. It's one meal, one in the same meal. The meal before you falls within the category of what we call sacraments. Now, the word sacrament descends from Latin in reference to something sacred. The word was also used judiciously and militarily, something called the sacramentum desere. I hope I pronounced that right. Becky will let me know afterwards. This was to swear an oath. In the early church, then, sacramentum became came to apply to sacred things, sacred rites, in which the two parties that are participating are swearing oaths to one another. It was used to describe Christian ceremonies and was brought into connection with another odd word, a Greek word, mysterion, which means secret. In the Latin Vulgate Bible, sacramentum is translated for mysterion. Here's an example. Colossians 1.27, to them... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what does it mean that the second person of the Trinity is in you? And Paul refers to it, thankfully, as a mystery, because I'm with him. What does that? What is that? The living God dwells in you. And, and this is the category of things we're talking about. Something is happening to the bread. Something is happening to the wine. And as you're consuming these odd things, something is happening to you. And it is a mystery. Here you see the covenant union between a believer and Christ, a thing that is easier to explain what it means than how it works. Sacraments are like our union with Christ because that is what they represent to us. And this is one of those categories of things. It is my responsibility to be honest with you. I, I will and I can, as best as I can, explain what is happening. I, I can say nothing on how. Everything that I say today, I will not be explaining how it happens because I, I can't begin to comprehend it. This is like when I explain, <laughs> explain to my students. I had students years ago, and I'm explaining to them that God made everything out of words. Right? And you're like, oh, okay, so he just he said tree and there was a tree. Yes. Well, how does he do that? <laughs> Moving on. Lesson. Next lesson. <laughs> they were smart kids. They they thought, well, Mr. Class, you know, like, hey guys, good luck with that. Right? When you figure it out, let me know. So this is one of those sermons. There, <laughs> there are going to be things in this that are raised that are, if if there are questions in your mind, I'm with you 100. percent How? How? How does it happen? How does bread cease to be merely bread? Right? How, how does one man and one woman become one flesh? It's the same, same kind of question. How did the living God come th- in, into the world as a baby? Right? These are the things that we're talking about. And if I could explain them very easily to you, you should get up and leave. Because then we're not dealing with God as he is and who he is. Right? We have to remember, for all of our study, for all of our, right, for how amazing Logos Bible software is, we were just talking about yesterday all the wonderful things it can do. Right? We have to understand what we're talking about, and that's God. Right? His inner life and who he has always been. 
Now, going back for a moment, this mystery or secret is only a mystery and a secret fully and completely to the world. To us, it's not. It's, it is a mystery, but it's less of a mystery. The Greeks call it folly, the Jews a stumbling block, but to those who come to God's table when called, a sacrament is a visible sign that communicates Christ's finished work to you as you eat and drink. It's a means of grace. This is what Romans 4.11 said of Abraham and circumcision. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. He believed God. And because he believed God, he was given a sign so that every time he saw it, he would know he is the Lord's, that he is righteous in the eyes of God. Circumcision represented covenantal righteousness acquired by faith, not by lineage, not by mere external right. Faith is the vehicle that delivers covenant realities to participants through the means of the sacrament. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The sign of circumcision represented the righteousness of a Jewish man who received it by faith. Baptism does the same thing. Now, see, grace isn't just communicated in a sacrament. Grace is actually received. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. The blood of Christ, signified by the wine, what does it do? Right? He says this is what the blood does. What does the blood do? When you pick up this cup and you drink of this cup, this is what it does. It lavishes upon you the mystery of his will. It lavishes upon you forgiveness. It lavishes upon you redemption and the riches of his grace. Right? You're not just just getting a little sip of wine so that you can recall that Jesus bled a little bit. You're like, yeah, okay, blood, wine, I get it. They're the same color. Thank you. No, when you're drinking of it, something is being lavished upon you. Lavished. And it's forgiveness and grace and the mystery of his will. The secret things of God are transferred to you. The things that only God can possess are transferred to you. When we eat and drink at this table, we are participating in Christ. The wine in the cup is the blood referenced in Ephesians 1. 1 Corinthians 10.16 says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the body, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now think about that word, participate. Participate. Now when you're at home watching the X Games, are you participating in roller skating? No, you're watching it from the outside. When you hold up this cup and this wine, you're not just looking at something that's external. When you eat and you drink, you're participating in him. Right? You're together. You're you're in the boat rowing in the same direction. You're on the same team. What he is going through, you're going through. His experiences and your experience, you're participating in the things that he participated in. Now, that's what's happening. How is that happening? I'm going to just move on because I don't know. But that's what's happening. 
We participate in Christ when we eat and drink by faith. That is what is happening. How is almost too poetic to comprehend. Now, sacraments. There are only two. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Sacraments have a covenantal union between the sign and the thing signified. This is also very important to understand. The blood of Christ is connected to the wine, right? The thing, the sign, excuse me, and the thing signified are one. This is what I mean by covenantal union. You can't separate the wine from the blood. They don't cease to be the distinct things that they are, but somehow they come to represent each other so much that when you have one, you have the other. The, The sign and the thing signified. The blood of Christ and the wine, the bread and Christ's body, the water and Christ's death and resurrection. The covenantal union between the sign and the thing it signifies is the work of the Holy Spirit, who with divine authority says that the water is united to the cleansing while distinct from it. Right Now this is what happens. You go down into the water, and there the Holy Spirit is, washing you in the water signifying, right, by the water. What he's doing is you're being buried and you're being raised again with Christ. That's what Paul says. That's what's really happening, right? And so no matter how dark the, the, the hole is that you dig for yourself, how deep it is, how dark the cave is you wander into, you have this light. You remember. I remember the water washing over me and I remember it washing away my sins. You can remember Right? Who am I? Well, I was washed. The water was upon me. The Spirit was there, and it was doing the very thing that Jesus promised it would do. Now, how many? that's why the, the apostles are always referring back to the baptism, because it's something that you're supposed to hold on to, to cling to, to look to, as a sign of the thing signified. Now, the Roman Catholic position about sacraments separates or, or unites the things so much so that it, you, create, you have the error where there is no difference. I've been at, uh, I've participated in a Catholic rite. You know, you, they give you this wafer that melts in your mouth because you're not supposed to chew it. You're not supposed to chew on Jesus' flesh. I mean, that's moderately funny to me. Like you don't want Jesus stuck in your teeth or something. They, they have so united the, the sign and the thing signified that there is no difference between the two, which is gross. I'm just going to say that. That's gross and weird. The modern evangelical position destroys the definition of a sacrament by divorcing the sign and the thing signified. Right? There, there's nothing spiritual going on here. This is something that we just simply hold in our hands, an object to consider outside of us so that we remember the gospel and what happened at the end. In this view, the sacrament of communion consists of mere objects of remembrance, like wedding rings. I wear two. There's a story behind that. But when people see this, what do they assume when it's on my finger? right? And what do people assume when I go out with my buddies and I take it off? Or to the gym and take it off? But is this my marriage? No. It's something that reminds me and reminds everyone else. And a lot of people think that's what communion is. These objects you hold in your hands that merely remind you of something. But to best understand what communion actually is, you have to talk about things that are similar to it. What it actually is like is like the wedding, like the marriage bed. See, and I'm nervous already just by saying that because this is not how modern evangelicals talk about things. Because in a marriage bed, what happens? 
Right? If, if a couple gets married, they're not married technically until they consummate the wedding by going to bed together. Now, every time they do go to bed together, what they're doing is they're renewing their marriage vows, but they're doing more than that. They're not just renewing their marriage vows. They're feeding their intimacy. They're maturing and growing as a couple together. Right? What's good gets grows. What's bad grows because there's, there's a covenantal union going on there. There's more than just f- physical contact happening. There's something that is there that is magical, that is difficult to explain, and that is what communion is like. When we're eating and drinking it, we're renewing the vows that we made when we got baptized, but we're doing more than that. It's feeding our faith. It's growing our maturity. It's connecting us deeper and deeper and deeper every time we do it to the person who it represents. That's how we have to think about it. It's not just a wedding ring. It is like a wedding ring, but it's more than that. It's like the marriage bed itself. And and, and I tell couples, the marriage bed is not where intimacy happens. It's where you harvest the fruit from all the intimacy in the rest of your marriage. And so when you come to this table, you're harvesting the fruit of your intimacy with God. It's not the only place that it happens. The whole world is sacramental teeming with deep metaphor. Baptism in the Lord's table have the Lord's promises attached to them, and when approached rightly, they nurture and instruct us in the way of thinking and the way of acting that, that reflects Jesus Christ. Right? If you think it right, the more you obey, the more you are what? Yourself or the more you are like him? Right? And so the thing, the sign and the thing signified become one. So the more you act like him, Right? The more people see him in your actions and hear him in your words. Sacraments nurture and instruct. They enable us to see what is occurring throughout the rest of our lives. This table fellowship, or I'm sorry, table fellowship with friends is not a sacrament, but it is sacramental. Right? As I, right? As you're sitting there at the table, serving one another, feeding one another, it's not a sacrament, but it's sacramental. Sex is not a sacrament, but it is sacramental. Giving birth is not a sacrament, but motherhood is certainly sacramental. The world declares the glories of God, creation being a sign of God's attributes and power according to Romans 1. So when we go outside, the whole world is sacramental. This happens. When I'm driving and I see the Mount Mount Rainier, I think, man, the mountain of the Lord is way bigger than that. And I'm who, what am I doing? I'm communing there with him. I'm contemplating him. I'm thinking of him. The thing, the sign that is there, the mountain, and what it signifies, the mountain of the Lord, are one in my mind. And and the reason that I learned to look at the world this way, to think about this world this way, is because every week I come here and I hold, I love my boys, but are what increasingly smaller pieces of bread, which is slightly confusing. They're chopping them really small. It's like they're dicing tomatoes. And I hold this little piece of bread, and I have this little tiny cup, right? And, and, and this is where we learn, like, there is more going on here. There's more to this than just this little thimble, plastic thimble, and this tiny little crumb that my boys left us. <laughs> we'll talk about that later, I'm sorry. Right? And you think, how small, how insignificant. And you go outside, and you get down on your hands and knees, and you look at an ant, and you think, how small and insignificant. But what does the Word of God say? The Word of God says, go to the ant and behold him, and learn something right? about being prepared for the wintertime. 
And so what we learn from this table, from the word of God, is that this is a sacrament. And what it does is it teaches us how to comprehend the rest of the world, how to comprehend our own lives. The sign and the thing signified. Now, this is, as I said, the 63rd sermon. Who is this person that we have been talking about? Those of you who have been here the whole time, what kind of person is he? What kinds of things does he do? And, and I think, you know, through this whole series, I think we've gotten to know him a lot better. But, but there's something here at the end that I want, I want us to remember, right, who he really is. Because looking at the man, sometimes we forget that he's the God-man. And, and I'm reminded of something that C.S. Lewis wrote. And he said that we don't just believe in a God, some disembodied being of eternal truths. We believe in this God. Right? Faith in a God is not what we're here to talk about. Faith in this God. This God as he is. This God as he reveals himself. Jesus Christ as he has been walking around in all these stories, doing all of these things, that's the person we believe in. We believe in this God, the God who made a world in which we find all the danger and joy and mystery and wonder of a womb. Now just think about it for a moment. He's there for eternity past. And he's going to make this world. And he makes this world in, in such a way that you have something like a womb. Which is if you stop and think about what a womb is, it's terrifying. It's a <laughs> For the first nine months of our lives, we lived inside of another person. right? And, and we, we don't really stop and think about it, but they made an entire alien franchise out of that idea. Because that's really creepy when you right? And I mean, until very recent history, every time a woman was going to go into labor, no one knew who was going to survive. It's a terrifying thing. And yet, right, Rhett, I've seen my wife go through it six times now. The smile on her face when the kid is kicking. That funny answer she gives me where I say, oh, what did you do today? And she said, oh, you know, not much, just made ears. Just sat around making ears. Like two, right? You didn't make more than two. You know? <laughs> now, he was there in heaven, and he descended into this world through a womb. I would have come some other way, but he came through the womb. That's the God that we're talking about. And so if, if, you, if you stop and you think about what that actually means, what kind of God we're actually talking about, Right? It makes a, th- a conversation about the Lord's Supper a little easier to understand. This God made a world in which we bury seeds in the ground. They rise up as wheat. We, we then cut the wheat and sift the wheat and grind the wheat and mix this wheat with other wonders, and then we burn it just so and make a loaf of bread that we put butter on and eat with things like spaghetti, which is its own wondrous thing. God made a world like this is how we feed ourselves. And then he came into the world and he said, I am bread. What what happens to so many of us, because we own Bibles, because we are Christians, because we talk about these things, is what G.K. Chesterton said. It's not that there's a lack of wonders. It's that there is a lack of wonder. 
And so what is going on on this table in front of us? What is it? Right? I've explained the theological, this was my theological explanation. I went to all the books and I looked it up and I said, okay, they're explaining sacraments and they're explaining these things and this, this is the theological answer. But I want us just to stop, and right? Because now we're going to look directly at Jesus and we're going to hear him speak from his own mouth. And, and this is the God who came through a womb. This is a God who became a loaf of bread. So let, what, what he's going to do now is teach us through a whole bunch of Old Testament references what he thinks is going on. And, and for me, it only gets slightly clearer. It gets more wonderful, but it only gets a little clearer. The Lord's Supper is a mystery revealed by Christ and is made clear by comprehending Jesus' many Old Testament references. And so we begin. Mark 14, verses, verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. The context of the first Lord's Supper is Passover. Christ instituted the observance, observance of the Lord's Supper at the annual Passover festival of the Jews. In the course of that meal, Christ set apart some of its elements for the establishment of a new meal. He took from the old meal certain parts to make a new meal. That's very important to remember. Christians were to take and receive these elements and remember Jesus proclaiming his death until the second coming. 1 Corinthians 11.26 says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, what is fascinating about that is that they receive these things from him, and it's not just about them and him in this private way. He's, right? Paul tells us we're declaring something by holding this bread up and this wine up. We're declaring something to the whole world until he comes back. The essential action is not the breaking, which is often what people make a big deal out of. It's the distribution is the key. As certainly as the disciples ate the bread Jesus handed to them, he is certainly present with them when they gather for the table fellowship ever after. He wanted them to remember. He gave himself to them. Right? We focus so much on the breaking of the bread. But we, right? think about this fact. He's holding and he says, this is me. And he gives himself away. And they then have to receive it. Jesus is anticipating the resurrection and the real presence of the Lord at the celebration of the Lord's Supper whenever it is observed. Jesus is the Emmanuel, the God with us. This is spiritually true, for we dwell in him, but it is also covenantally true, as represented by the symbols he himself established for the first Lord's Supper. These realities are renewed every time we gather to eat it again. Every time we gather to eat it again, Jesus is giving himself away again. Now, right, there are limits to how much we can give of ourselves, isn't there? And our, our spouses and our kids tend to find it. Sometimes quick, real quick. And we know that Jesus' body was broken, but, but think, every week, every person who sits there and is given a piece of bread, this is Jesus Christ giving himself again to the participant, and does it ever run out? Does it ever end? Do we, right? Do we ever say, oh, well, we only got to the fourth row, that's all the Jesus we got today? No, we'll, we'll go all the way to the back of the room, right? And, and back again. And then next week when you come here, we'll do it again. 
there is enough Jesus to go around to anybody and everybody who wants some. Now, at the same time that this is a representing him giving himself away, it is a memorial in the Old Testament sense, but not like the new modern theological sense of it. Because what is a memorial, a covenantal memorial in the Old Testament? One example is a rainbow. Genesis chapter 9, verses 13 through 15. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Now, the first question I have is, does God really need to remind himself of something? Do you think he, right? Does he set a timer? Is that, is that how he operates? Does he write himself a post-it note and stick it on the fridge? Because to me, him saying this, that's what it seems like. There's a giant post-it note in the sky so that Jesus doesn't remember to kill us all again. Like, is that really what's happening? But this is a God who communicates. This is a God who, right? This kind of thing is not beneath him. Communicating to little tiny people who can barely comprehend <laughs> Right? the world they live in, this is how he communicates. He takes his war bow and he sets it in, he- in the heavens, pointed towards heaven. And he's promising them because this is what they will comprehend. I will, every time I see it, remember you. Now, here's the second thing I get nervous about. Well, it doesn't, there aren't rainbows that often. What if he forgets? Like literally, what if, like, it's been a little while since I've seen one. What if he suddenly re- forgets, given what he said here, it's a reminder, and then suddenly the whole world's flooded again. Is that going to happen? No, we go to Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, and this is what it says. Around the throne of God was a rainbow. And so he's sitting on his throne in heaven, and all around it is a rainbow. Because when he looks out on the world, he looks out through his promises. He looks out through what he has himself promised to do. He sees you with rainbow-colored eyes. Now, does he just see you with rainbow-colored eyes, or does he look out upon the whole world with rainbow-colored eyes? Because he made this promise not just to those who believe in him, but to the whole world. When he sees you and me, when he sees anyone in this world, he sees them with rainbow-colored eyes. That is the God that we serve. This is why Paul added to the institution of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians. He added to it, do this in remembrance of me. But as I, Dean did a sermon on this many years ago, it was awesome. He explained this is actually better translated as do this for my remembrance. So when you're taking the wine and taking the bread, as Paul says, you're doing this for his remembrance. When you're holding the bread and the wine, it's just like the rainbow in the sky. It's something that he sees and he remembers what he promised to do and not do according to Jesus Christ. So in this sense, communion is... Not just something that he gives away, he's a sign of him giving himself away. It's also a sign that when we're holding it, God the Father sees us and he remembers his promises to us. But there is a reality to the celebration of the Lord's Supper that goes beyond mere memorial. Jesus said, I myself, I am myself this bread. My person is this bread. There's different ways to translate what he said, but he could not make the connection between himself and the loaf any more emphatic. 
Jesus in his humanity is in heaven, but in his deity, he is not restricted by time or space. So we can have full assurance when we come to the Lord's table that we come into his real presence. He is really and truly here. He is here at the head of the table and he is here upon the table. When Christ laid down his life, he did so in order to establish the new covenant with his new people. Consequently, the backslidden Christian should come to the supper with trembling and confession had better be upon his lips before the bread and wine ever touch it. Right? This is, this is part of the problem with a lot of people who are eating and drinking it who probably should um, deal with some things first. Because we think it's only a memorial. We don't think he's really here. And so, right, this is like stealing a cookie out of the cookie jar and eating it. Mom doesn't know what's going on. She's not present, and so it's okay. And, and, and I, I, I mean, there are, are stories that I know personally, right? Paul was not joking around in Corinthians when he said, some of you are eating it and drinking it wrongly and dying. And there are, that can still, <laughs> that can still happen. When, right, because he's really there, and are you messing around with just a loaf of bread? When you take, when you grab hold of this bread, and you are unworthy of it because you are in unrepentant sin, and you start chomping on it, do you think that there is nothing that's going to happen to you? Many of us don't think anything is going to happen to us because we don't think anything is really happening at the table with the elements. Jesus is the head of a new family. He was giving his, to his disciples in advance, in symbolic form, the benefits of his death and asking his disciples to take those benefits into themselves, recasting the imagery of the Passover. One commentator puts it this way. In Jewish culture, when at the daily meal, the father recited the blessing over the bread and broke it and handed a piece to each member to eat, the meaning of the action was that each of the members were made a recipient of the blessing of the, by eating it. You would identify those who were blessed in the household because they would all participate in what the bread that the father held up and blessed. The meaning of the action was that each of the members were made a recipient of the blessing by their eating. The common amen and the common eating of the bread unite the members into table fellowship. And this is very difficult for us to understand because we live in modern America where we are all a bunch of lone rangers. We do not have this kind of spiritual, sacramental concept of the world that God has made. I mean, how often do we have to remind ourselves and one another that when you look at nature, you're looking at images of, right? You're looking at symbols that God wants you to see so that you know what he's like. When a man and a woman get married, they become one flesh. They become one person. They fulfill one another. When we sit here together and we eat this bread together and we drink this wine together, it's not just saying something about you and God. It's saying something about everybody together who's eating it together. Who are you? Who are the people sitting next to you? Who are the people sitting behind you and in front of you? Who are the people in Ukraine right now, right, to you, who are eating this same bread? And, and, and Paul said, we're declaring something to the world by doing this. There is more going on here than we think. 
Mark chapter 14, verses 23 through 24. And Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, during the course of the Passover, there were four cups of wine that were drank. The third cup was called the cup of blessing. The reference to the covenant established in Jesus' blood contains an allusion going all the way back to Exodus chapter 24, verses 6 through 8, where the old covenant at Sinai was ratified by the sprinkling of sacrificial blood and serves to set the whole of Jesus' messianic action in the light of covenant renewal. This is what it says back in Exodus. If you've never read this section, it's really quite fascinating because the elders and Moses are there and suddenly God appears to them and he's standing on a, a, a stone like a sapphire stone, and he eats and drinks with them. And Moses said, this is, the, this is what he says, Exodus 24, 8, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And so Jesus takes up the covenant and says, This is the covenant in my blood, and that's what he's echoing. He's making a new covenant. But <laughs> he's, he's greater than Moses, Moses had the, the, the blood of bulls and lambs. Who, whose blood does Jesus have? His own. The blood of the second person of the triune God. That's, who, that's the blood he's got. And he's not sprinkling it on anything. He's giving it to his disciples so that they can drink it. He relates the cup with the red, uh, the red wine to the renewal of the covenant between God and his people. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He will write his law on your heart. He will be your God. You will be his people. Every time you hold up the cup, this is what it is referring to. You don't have to go from here and wonder, who am I? What am I capable of? Whom do I belong to? Because every seven days, we sit here together, and we hold up the cup, and I see that you've got it, and you see that I've got it, and we're holding it up, and what does it represent? Is it just a plastic thimble with some cheap wine, Kirkland Signature wine that I bought at Costco? Is that really all it is? We like to think that because it's safer. But I'm telling you right now, if you're not, <laughs> it's not safer to just think it's nothing. It's safer to know what it is and to remember what it is and to live accordingly. That's the safe thing to do. Now, <laughs> what God are we serving? Here's Jesus, right? It's only been a few days since he entered the city. And how was the reception when he came into the city? Everyone was ecstatic. And then they come into the city, and, and, and here are all the disciples are who have been following, and they've been dirt poor, and they've been following this crazy man into the desert all, this, all these years, and now we finally come to the city, and he sits around and argues about the law for a few days. Because we lose how quick the events have been. He sits around arguing. 
And then he, and then he ta- says some crazy stuff about how he's going to tear the temple down. And now he's talking about how one of, one of these guys is a backstabber and he won't tell anybody. He says he knows who it is, but he won't tell them. Okay, all right, Jesus, man, it is getting old. This up and down and up and down, I can't handle this. And right here, right here are all the symbols of Israel's glory with God over Egypt. And what does Jesus do? He says, this cup is my blood, drink it. Now, for context's sake, we've all gotten used to it. But what do you think of a guy, no matter how holy he seems, who takes a cup and says, this is my blood, now here, sip, sip. Right? If you ever came to my house, what do I give you? I'll give you wine. I'll give you beer. I'll give you whiskey. I'll give you water. I'll give you soda pop. Right? If Justin Nielsen's there, we'll have some sort of organic, grape-flavored non-soda. Yeah, right. But what if I say, come into the living room here, I've got a nice 2008 vintage of my own blood. Well, where'd everyone go? Why is Dave Hatcher here investigating me from Presbytery? It is an absolutely insane thing to say. Totally insane. I, I, I really want us to stop and think this man is telling him to drink his blood. Now, if you're as a devout a Jew as these men, they remember something quite quickly. Not only are they like, man, Jesus, you are almost insane. Like, I don't even know what to do with you, Jesus. You're so crazy. But it also says in Genesis 9-4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. You can't even eat a steak that has blood in it, which means I'm breaking the law all the time. I'm just going to say that because I love me a bloody steak. But a good Jew couldn't even have blood in the steak because what you're doing is you're consuming its life force. Now, if that's how God's, what God says about a steak, how much more about a man? Even if they understand, like, okay, no, we saw him pour it, right? Did anyone see him pour it? It was actually wine, right? He didn't leach himself into this cup, did he? Because you don't know what to expect with Jesus. Also, we saw him turn water into wine, so what did he do to this wine? Is it actually wine? I would be very nervous if I were them, especially Leviticus 17.14. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature. For the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it, I shall, whoever eats it shall be cut off. You know, I don't know what's in the cup, Jesus. I'm real nervous. But in either way, even if it's just a metaphor, it's a metaphor that makes me really uncomfortable because you're telling me to break God's law. <laughs> right? This is one of those people who he's having a nice party with his friends, and then he, sa- he makes the joke or he says the thing where suddenly the party's not fun anymore. And everybody's wondering, is this almost over? Right? We got we to gotta go. Jesus, chill. Jesus' gift to his disciples, then, is the (laughs) assurance that he will not just be with them. It's not simply a a sign that's going to, when they hold it up, remind them and everybody else that sees them who they are and what God has done for them and that he will remember this promise. They hold it up, and it is an absolute and utter mystery. Totally confusing. Okay, Jesus, I mean... You said drink it, so we'll drink it. Jesus does not take the time to make anybody feel better about this. He just says, drink it. 
And he moves on. Mark 14.25, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Now, if you're a good Jew, again, there's four glasses of wine. We're on the third, and somebody says, well, what about the last one? We're not even going to finish this meal? We're not even going to finish it. Okay, Jesus, we're going to drink your blood now, and then we're going to just let the rest of this meal go to waste. The cup from which Jesus abstained was the fourth cup, which ordinarily coincided with, with the Passover fellowship. Jesus had used the third cup associated with the promise of redemption to refer to his atoning death on behalf of the elect community. The cup which he refused was the cup of consummation associated with the promise that God will take his people to be with him. This is the cup which Jesus will drink with his own in the messianic banquet. He's left a cup undrunk and he says, I won't drink it again until all things are made new. And we read at the end in Revelation 19, there, after the resurrection, all the people of God come to the table, and and, and it's this table, and there's Jesus with the fourth cup in his hand. He says, now I'm ready. And so what that actually means is that the meal that he started on the first Lord's Supper is still going on. Right? We talk about the, the kingdom, true, we talk about the people of God and the church militant. Yes. But we have this meal that is just ongoing in our lives every week. And it's the thing that we're constantly trying, right? when we evangelize, try to invite people to it. Jesus is sitting there at the head of the table and he's not going to finish up until everybody comes. That is a remarkable thought to me. That unites what we're doing, not only to everybody else in the world, but everybody else has ever sat down to it. There Jesus is, sitting at the head of the table, waiting for everybody to show up who's supposed to show up. What, what are his expectations about victory? What are his expectations about what is going, the gospel is going to do to the world? This is why Paul said, we are declaring something until he comes back. It's the same meal. We're, we're all participating in it, and we're inviting the world to it, and Jesus is there. He's patient. He's done all the things he needs to do to get everybody who's supposed to come to come. And so he's just waiting. And we're in the back going, okay, now? Now? How about now? I don't know. Trump might win again. How about now? Iran looks is making me nervous. How about now? Right? And a thousand years ago, we're... <laughs> Right? Black death is spreading everywhere. And everyone's sitting around going, how about now? Now seems good. This meal is still continuing. He's giving himself away. It's a sign of the promises of God. It's a total mystery. And it is going on and on and on until what he wants accomplished is accomplished. And we learn a little something about what he wants accomplished Mark 14, verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, it was customary to sing some of the Hallel Psalms at Passover. Psalm 113 through 114 before the meal. Psalms 115 to 118 after the meal. Jesus has fulfills these psalms as his own prayer. When he stands, think about this. He just enacted a meal that is a sign of a covenant like Moses had. 
There are his disciples, and they're just as confused about what's going on with this cup as you and I are in some sense. He gets up from the table, and now he's going to head where? Where, does he, where is he going? This is his last night on this planet. And he goes singing. And he goes singing songs that David wrote about him. Songs that have filled people with longing and hope and desire for, to see God's kingdom come and to see his glory right, spread throughout the world. And Jesus is the one who stands up. Do you think right, he's singing them? Do you think anyone in the history of the world has ever enjoyed singing these psalms that much? And this is what he sings about. The pledge to keep his vows in the presence of all people. Psalm 116, verses 12 through 19. The call of Gentiles to join in the praise of God. Psalm 117. Do you know how, just imagine what it must have sounded like hearing him sing that. He's going to go accomplish it now. And he's singing about what he's about to go do. A song of jubilation reflecting his steadfast confidence in his ultimate triumph. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. Psalm 118.17. I wish I could have been there for that. When Jesus arose to go to Gethsemane, Psalm 118 was upon his lips. It provided an appropriate description of how God would guide his Messiah through distress and suffering to ultimate glory. And we declare this gospel, this Passover feast, the table of the Lord to the nations every time we gather around it and participate in its grace by faith together. That's the meal that we're participating in. That's the singing that we're participating in. That's the calling that we are participating in. That's the God that we're not just worshiping, but that we are participating in. Although the institution of the supper indeed occurred in connection with Old Testament ideas of covenant and sacrifice, it surpasses them. Right? I, props to you, Moses, but nothing beats God himself singing Psalm 118 as he's heading out to get betrayed and arrested. Right? All of this stuff before, full of meaning, comes now to mean so many things, such deep things, that it's hard to comprehend on any level. <laughs> God wrote the songs and then he came himself, fulfilled the songs and sang the songs. You're like, what? What? He not only gave himself for his own, he gives himself to his own. That's the God that you're serving. The cup and the bread and the Lord's Supper are our participation in the blood and in the body of Christ. Now, I've explained this poem as well as I can. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to read it again because that's what we're talking about. This is, this is a poem about God and his love for you and his beauty and his goodness. John six fifty through 56. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him.
Now, as was read for us this morning, we hear the reaction. A whole bunch of people say, well, this is just absolute nonsense. And they get up and they leave. Does it say that the disciples understand it? Does it say, oh, yeah, they stayed because, yeah, that made a lot of sense, Jesus, what you just said. I'm going to eat your body. No, but Jesus, this, this is what I, Jesus turns to them and says, aren't you guys going to leave too? Is he looking for sycophant, little grabby followers that are going to, right? He's giving them the opportunity to depart because what he just said is very hard to understand. Right? And this is us because we're with them. How is this man going to get, right? How is God in heaven going to give us his flesh and blood to consume so that it gives us eternal life? I'm right there with him. I'm sitting there going, how's he going to do this? What? I have no idea. But the disciples, their response is what? Where else are we going to go? I don't really understand the word of life that you're preaching at me here, Jesus. But where else are we going to go? Because with you is eternal life. So when it comes down to it, it does not matter that you don't understand it. Right? There is, on one level, no understanding it this side of glory. And even when we are in glory, I don't think we're going to quite comprehend it. But you're not alone, not alone. And it's not unexpected to the Lord Jesus Christ that you would sit there and hear everything that I've said and go, what in the world does that mean? It's a test of faith. You eat by faith, you drink by faith. You believe what he says by faith. There is no explanation that he is going to give, that he could give, that we would understand. You simply eat it or you drink it or you don't. You simply believe that it gives you eternal life or you don't. You simply order your life accordingly or you don't. The Lord's Supper instituted by Christ at the Passover table is the same meal that has been celebrated in the Christian church up until right now. A great mystery. How will he give us his flesh to eat and blood to drink? By that same covenantal reality of the three persons who are one God. By that same mysterious humility and power that united the divine and human natures in the flesh of the God-man. By that same mysterious self-sacrificing love that Jesus the husbandman bears for his bride, the church. In it, he presents his sacrifice before our eyes for our sustenance. So that we too rise up from God's table and sing of God's fulfilled promises and his desire for the nations and for the eschatological kingdom that is even now spreading over the whole world because he is winning. That we would rise up full of joy, the joy of our salvation, the hope of eternal life and the fellowship of Jesus Christ. This bread is Christ. This cup is full of his purifying blood. This is the food that gives eternal life and believing it is how he does it. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for this mystery. We thank you for this love. We thank you for this grace. We thank you for this this test of our faith. We pray, Lord God, that we would, with trembling lips and with sweaty palms, confess, I believe, help my unbelief. And as we eat and drink, we know that you will feed our faith, that you will draw even closer to us, that you will draw us even closer to yourself closer to one another. I pray, God, that we would, on some level, understand what it is that we are participating in, that we would believe it, and that we would live accordingly. And amen.